Hello, and welcome to the Mage, the Hero Described podcast. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm Kevin, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number three of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. This review is a bit delayed, since the closest comic shop that carries Mage is about a 30-minute drive or so. I decided to get these in the mail. I figured, no muss, no fuss. However, the last issue arrived around the time issue number four came out, so uh, so much for that brilliant idea. After this episode is wrapped up, I will be getting into issue number four ASAP and start working on the next episode. Uh, the Thanksgiving holidays kind of threw things off kilter trying to find time to, uh, to record this after the notes and uh, such were all put together. Now, before I dive in, a spoiler warning. As usual, I'm going to spoil this issue. Plot points, action from past issues, you name it, totally and completely. But before we get to it, some comments and corrections about the last episode. Item number one. I'm tempted to redo the entire episode because I mispronounced one word. I was quoting something that Matt Wagner had written about issues with or the experience of planning the end of The Hero Defined, and I totally mangled denouement. And I I know the word's meaning, but have I don't know. It was late, it's tired, I have no excuse. I just mangled it completely. So, there's that. Also, doing some research, I noticed a comment by Kevin to Joe Fat in Hero, um, in one of the early issues of Hero Defined, that he learned French when visiting Paris. Now, most likely, that's the location of the first interlude. In fact, this comment sent me back on another search. I had mentioned in a previous episode that I had found photos of the fountain featured in the Mage First interlude, and then I wasn't able to find it. I was following the Canadian scent left by Hero Defined, thinking, oh, this must be somewhere in Canada, and uh, actually it is the Apollo Fountain at uh, the Versailles Palace in Paris. I've included example images in this episode's as-mentioned blog post. Uh, It's pretty exact. It's no question about it. In episode number five, I also asked a few questions. There's a panel where Kevin and Hugo were getting ready to leave the house. Kevin says to Hugo, Morning, bud. No school for you, right? I assume your mom went out. And Hugo replies, nope, in service, whatever that means. And yeah, she left you a note. I completely misread this sequence. I thought Hugo, in many ways, didn't respond to no school for you today, right? I read it like that was more of a rhetorical question, not needing a response. And I wasn't familiar with the term in service. It was pointed out to me that the in-service comment has nothing to do with Magda going out. This is part of Hugo saying he doesn't have school. The reason is an in-service day, which is typically a training day for teachers. Now, another thing I discussed was the pacing of the Mage series, and something I'd run into discussing um, each series could be broken into three to five issue sections. I'd read somewhere uh, some theory about breaking it up, like acts of a movie, introduction, rising action, and conclusion. However, In a recent post on Facebook on November 19th, Matt Wagner mentioned that throughout the Mage trilogy, each book basically consists of four-issue arcs or movements, usually with an accompanying gap in story time as well. That usually is an important thing to keep in mind, as we'll discuss in a moment. You can actually see this pattern when you look at the early Mage book volumes. 
Collections of the Hero Discovered. Volume 1 contains issues 1 through 4. Volume 2 had 5 through 8. I'm not sure if the original Kamiko Mage books made it past Volume 2, or if it was discontinued as the Starblaze collections began. Either way, those original collections contained four issues each, or a single arc. I thought this was a, worth a closer look, so I dug into the archive, and I see that we, we can find the following in past series. In Hero Discovered, between issue 4 and 5, Kevin and Mirth get caught by the police at the end of issue 4, and in issue 5, there's a short gap we pick up a short time later, later with Kevin in a jail cell. Then between issue 8 and 9, there's a large, obvious gap after Mirth has hidden himself in the fairy realms, and issue 9 picks up about five months later and opens with an encounter between Kevin and two of the Grackleflint brothers, Laszlo and Radu. And then between issue 12 and 13, in this case, Kevin had been poisoned by a Grackleflint and taken into the fairy realms by Mirth at the end of issue 12. Issue 13 starts a whole year later in the fairy realms, and the art, the brilliant green of the fairy realms, the black silhouettes of the characters, with features standing out like Kevin's lightning bolt, Mirth's hair and leggings, Edsel's necklace, all in white against the, their pitch black figures. And of course, Edsel's Edsel is there in all of its red and chrome glory. Just an amazing, uh, some amazing pages opening up issue 13. But again, a, uh, a year-long gap between those two issues. And ultimately, then, issues 13 to 15 make up the last four-comic chunk of that story, with issue 15, uh, a double-sized issue, essentially counting as 15 and 16. The gaps in Hero Defined are a bit more subtle. Not necessarily the lengthy, obvious gaps in Hero Discovered. Most issues that are not at those points tend to end and pick up respectively with virtually no break in time at all. Sometimes it almost seems like they pick up from one to the next mid-dialogue. In Hero Defined, between issues 4 and 5, in issue 4, Kirby and Joe fight against the Spriggan Flints. Those are uh, Emil Grackle Flint's offspring. And then head north, and they're followed by Wally Ut on his uh, bicycle. And issue 5 opens an unspecified time later with Joe and Kevin going through customs into Canada. I believe Kirby is absent at the time being. So it's an unspecified gap here for travel. Between issues 8 and 9, as issue 8 closes, uh, spoiler alert as if this thing isn't full of them, the Hornblower has died on patrol. Kirby is off on his own path again. Kevin and Joe return to their pad to find that they have some guests, most notably a certain blonde with a streak of purple in her hair and a star beauty mark. Issue 9 picks up a little later with Kevin and Joe watching the Witch Sisters covening. And then between issues 12 and 13, issue 12 ends with Kevin and Kirby rescuing Joe Fat deep in the dark fairy realms inside the Mystic Mountain, as it were. And issue 13 opens a few hours later with the team trying to find their way out. And again, with the double-sized issue of number 15, comics 13 to 15 make up the last four comic arc or chunk. Also in the last episode, last podcast, I mentioned that Matt Wagner had made a comic cookbook. And in the as-mentioned-in post for that blog, for that podcast, uh, I posted a panel from this. It ends up that I had hallucinated this or read bad information years ago. I, I do remember hearing that Matt was interested in doing a cookbook. He 
loves to cook quite the foodie, but he never did a whole cookbook. He just did a short story called Comic Book Chef. And last of all, for the Arthurian fans in the crowd, well, Arthurian fans probably already noticed this, but here's a neat little bit of trivia. Caliburn is the original Celtic name for Arthur's weapon, predating the more modern Excalibur. The Arthurian legend is a real medieval mashup. There's lots of story variations, name variations, uh, lots of different influences bleeding into the Arthurian legends over the centuries. However, it does seem that the Caliburn variation of the name first arose in the 12th century, and then in the 13th century, French writers introduced the name Excalibur. This looks like another neat way that Matt sneaks Easter eggs into the story. And in this case, the original name of Excalibur appears as a supposed mispronunciation of Excalibur by Hugo. One more thing I noticed while putting this episode together, something totally random, or at least finding it was totally random. In a past issue, I mentioned Sophia eating a dark fairy messenger. And this actually isn't the first time we've seen the eating habits of dark minions. Early in The Hero Defined, Emil Grackoflint grabs some kind of small, dark, flying nasty. There's bunches of these all over his lair, and he feeds it to one of his sons, the Spriggenflints. I'll uh, include it in the as-mentioned for this episode. And one more thing while we get into this uh, into this issue. I was thinking about how um, the Umbra Sprite and Emil have tracked Kevin Matchstick in the past. I, I think I may have discussed this in a past episode or so, but, but let's dig in for a second. In The Hero Discovered, before Kevin's power has been awakened and he shines with white with his power all about him, it's Mirth's bright green magic that continually allows the Umbra Sprite to track and find our heroes. This is why Mirth ultimately leaves the team for a time so they can operate undetected, without his green aura, if you will, helping the Umbra Sprite find them. In Hero Defined, Emil seems to have no problem in tracking Kevin. Usually it seems like he has to be using his power, but sometimes not even that. And he does this through a crystal ball scrying ring. But whenever Wally Utz shows up, Kevin goes invisible. And I believe Matt has made reference in the past that in superhero parlance, he is essentially Kevin's secret identity. Now, as the Umbra Sprite and Minions have been seeking out Kevin Matchstick, they are frustrated. Uh, it's clear he's living under an assumed name. And it seems likely that Kevin has taken Magda's last name as his own. The Umbra Sprite and Company don't know to look for a Kevin Hunter, and this seems likely given the comment in the issue that the bad guys are unaware of Magda and the kids, or at least they don't know who Magda is specifically. But if Kevin's hiding behind the name Hunter, this is almost a sidelong way of saying that Mage has been at times hidden in the shadows of Matt's other signature work, Grendel, whose initial title character was Hunter Rose. So we get a nod to Grendel, and we get a little bit of a, of a look at that. And I think that's how this is going to play out. Okay, so let's get on to the actual issue recap, the, uh, the review. I'm not going to cover this issue in exactly the order events happen, just to help cover more ground about some storylines without going back and forth. First of all, this is a just a fun issue. We have lots of family and exposition, explanation moments that work for both bringing some characters up to date with the rules of this world, as well as maybe new readers, but also some scenes that play like very specific genres. In this case, 
uh, a horror comedy at one point and a gritty action movie. This issue really picks up with Kevin and Hugo in the aftermath of the battle with the satyr-like warriors. Uh, later on in the uh, issue, they'll be identified as, I believe, uh, Fomerians or Fomorians. Okay, now, I did a little bit of research, and thanks to uh, Wikipedia, the Fomorians appear to be a supernatural race of, um, of real badasses from Irish mythology. They um, are representative of harmful, destructive powers of nature. They're the personification of chaos, darkness, death, blight, and drought. And when it comes to Irish mythology, they actually, in many ways, are supposed to have already been on Ireland when, um, when the Irish first arrived. Um, there's uh, some writings that report that uh, they had arrived some 200 years earlier and had been living on fish and fowl until, until men arrived there. And much like Matt's amazing depiction of them, they're said to have, uh, sometimes said to have had the body of a man and the head of a goat. That's according to the Book of the Dun Cow. Uh, in some cases, they have one eye, one arm, and one leg. But I think it might be hard to be a real badass warrior in a in a situation like that. But those are the uh, the Fomarians or Fomorians rather that Kevin and Hugo uh, encountered. And after that, we get this great scene of Kevin calming Hugo and helping him find his way from this dark fairy realm back to the normal world. And we see them walking Wittershins or counterclockwise around the VW. Kevin telling Hugo to think good thoughts and follow the light back to the everyday world. So we get more of Kevin Matchstick, the dad, telling his son it's it's okay to cry because those were big, scary things, and that even he gets scared too, but that he was more angry that Hugo might get hurt by them. So really just sharing some great, great lessons here, laying down a, kind of a great role model. And now, throughout this section, we get some important information. Now, one, it appears that the battles with nasties don't really take place here, although they may have an impact on the everyday world or somehow be perceived in the normal world. Uh, and there's some instances of this later in the book. But heroes seem to enter into a, a world-next-door dark fairy realm. This is likely what keeps normal humans from actually seeing nasties in their true form, if at all. Now, Hugo mentions that in that park that day, uh, that Matt, that um, <laughs> that Kevin had his first encounter with the Hob crew or the Nasty crew, he saw something creepy and weird. Hugo also learns that his dad's ability to fight like this is only possible when he's fighting a mystical threat. That if his dad were just fighting someone on the street, to use Kevin's words, he'd be toast. Now, we've seen this before, back when Kevin's power first manifests, and right after he survives getting run over by a subway train while battling a grackle flint, uh, he gets poked by a splinter. And, uh, you know, right after this amazing and vulnerable experience, he gets poked by a splinter and hurt by it. We also see this especially in the prison scene when Kevin is trying to show off that he's some kind of superhero, 
and is proven less than invulnerable. So he's always had to be using his powers in the service of the struggle, of the fight, uh, not just in everyday life or to show off. And maybe it's just me, but I like to think that in a case of artistic foreshadowing, that splinter in issue one, I believe it is, of Mage the Hero Discovered, when it presses into his palm, it looks, you know, the the shape of the splinter, the crease it's making into his palm, looks a whole hell of a lot like a bat. Uh, check it out in the as-mentioned-in uh, post on the website for this episode. And the third thing that Hugo learns is that magic is real and very dangerous. Kevin mentions that this is the first of what will likely be many talks about these unique facts of life, at which point Hugo connects some dots and enthusiastically wonders if this means that he too will have some kind of special powers. Michael Penskis of Blackgate.com in his review of this issue raises a good point here. He mentions that the fact that, quote, Hugo is able to slip into this parallel world on his own to even see something creepy and weird could indicate that something hereditary is possibly at play. Later, we see Magda get home, and it's a neat touch that as a witch, we see her coming into the house and placing a broom against the wall, which is neither brooms, right? She sees Kevin brooding and immediately figures out that there's been another encounter, and this time with one of their children present. They have a discussion again whether this means it's time to move. If immediate safety is more important than the promise of the long-term protection offered by Magda's magic crock potion. But Kevin says that it, it really bothers him to just run without putting up a fight. And so they reach no decision at this point. While all this is going on, we revisit the Gracklethorns, Alexi and Sasha on their patrol to find the Fisher King. Now, here is where we enter into a bit of the horror comedy genre as the Thorns visit the Sacred Heart mission. In this environment, dressed as they are, the Thorns look like displaced working girls, and there's some dialogue in here that's a little humorous that really plays off of that. Now, Sasha provides the comedic relief with some tongue-in-cheek dialogue about being judged by their appearances and having so many sins to atone for when talking with a nun working at the mission. And it doesn't take long for them to find a contender. Mr. Sanchez, constantly destitute, missing a leg, all the initial indicators of the Fisher King. So while Sasha distracts the nun, Alexi calls the Umbra Sprite, who speaks some eldritch tongue into the phone. Now nothing happens. Mr. Sanchez replies in Spanish that he doesn't understand. This is not the Fisher King. The phrase supposedly would have left the real Fisher King screaming in agony. The Umbro Sprite orders Alexi to show Mr. Sanchez what that agony would feel like, and the Gracklethorn's finger extends into a long, pale claw, which she uses to poke into Mr. Sanchez's forehead. It's not clear what she does here, but he starts screaming in agony and dies foaming at the mouth. So, where the Grackleflints had elbows with venom that would poison and kill... The thorns have claws that perform a similar, if not exactly the same, function. The Umbra Sprite has a history of letting its children randomly dispense pain and misery where they, when they're on the job. In Hero Discovered, there's a scene where Laszlo Grackleflint had a skill that the thorns would probably like to use. He was clairvoyant. 
Just by touching someone, he'd be able to tell if that person was the Fisher King. In issue three of Hero Discovered, upon finding that a possible Fisher King candidate was actually just a beggar faking to be crippled, the Umbra Sprite orders its son to kill him anyway. If he's just a beggar, no one will miss him. And then he adds in an offhanded, vicious manner, in fact, have a little fun with him if you like. And Laszlo elbow spikes the beggar with venom, causing him to writhe in pain, crying out that some things, some things are crawling all over him, eating his eyes, and then he dies. So clearly, given whatever the power set of the thorns is, are, none of them have this ability to ascertain the identity or being uh, or essence of a person with just touching them, as uh, as Laszlo, I believe, was the one who had the uh, ability to do that. Back at the Sacred Heart, where Mr. Sanchez's outcry reaches the nun, Sasha stops her from leaving as the disguise spell glamour wears off, and her human face just melting away to show that pale skin underneath. And claws extended, we get another bit of horror comedy dialogue, and Sasha mentions to Alexi that she wanted to eat a part of the nun, so she gave her a full dose of whatever it is that they ex- that they inject so she wouldn't scream, and uh, some additional offhand comments about nuns being chewy. So while I don't recall the Grackleflints eating humans, it seems the Gracklethorns, or at least Sasha, does. This is repeated or re-emphasized again as the scene closes with these two Gracklethorns looking to get a cab, and Sasha enthuses about how she just loves cab drivers. Uh, clearly uh, speaking in a uh, in the way that somebody who's looking forward to their next really yummy meal uh, might say it. And this is emphasized with these great font embellishments by Dave Lanfear bringing that dialogue to life. The Thorns then return to Archeron Insurance headquarters where Alexi says that searching haphazardly for the Fisher King just isn't working. And she suggests that they set up their own care center to lure the Fisher King to, quote, an opulent haven for the foul and forlorn. All the thorns chime in with their own ideas, and the Umbra Sprite really digs this idea that they could just set up a place that on the outside will look like a a, a place of care and support, but in actuality would cause more misery and suffering while they seek the Fisher King, their own little torture playground. And here we get a specific idea of each thorn's strengths or role to some degree. Alexi, who so far has clearly been the leader or the most outspoken, is assigned to coordinate operations outreach. The rest of the Umbra Sprite uh, assigns an activity, but he also names them by trade. Carol, my adept, secure a space that will beckon and dazzle. So we'll have to wait and see what what is meant by that, by, by being the Umbra Sprite's adept. Zofia, my cruel, is head inquisitor. Sasha, my siren, make it lavish and seductive. Olga, the fierce, will make it secure. This is a real villain's plan compared to, I don't know, what the Umbra Sprite has spent decades doing, if not longer, just randomly finding cripples and hoping. And the Sprite spares no opportunity to cast shade on the Grackleflints while praising its daughters. In contrast with their brothers, who are virtually identical in appearance, the Thorns have all their own unique look. 
But one thing I've noticed that's super fun is Sophia, uh, who is, is, is constantly doing flips, stance poses, handstands, you name it. And in the letter column of this issue is a spectacular letter from Jen Dolari. Uh, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing uh, her last name correctly. She's the author of the webcomics Closet Space and A Wish for Wings. According to Matt, Jen is the only commenter to correctly place the inspiration for the Gracklethorns' look and their fashion sense. The subject line for her letter into incantations was, From left to right, posh, sporty, baby, bleh. From left to right, posh, sporty, baby, ginger, scary Grack, aligning each thorn with a specific Spice Girl. Uh, who Matt pretty much says they definitely were his inspiration. Now, time-wise, let's figure out that the that the ending of Mage the Hero Defined takes place around 1989. That's around the time that Kamiko went bankrupt and could be signified by the bat exploding. And I believe the letter column of a later issue of Grendel actually features photos from Matt Wagner and Barbara Schutz's wedding. So roughly... The timing fits. If this is 10 years after the end of Mage the Hero Defined, or maybe in fact closer to about 8 years given, uh, well, 10 to 8 years, the story is analogous roughly to maybe when Matt would be working on Mage 2 the Hero Defined. Now this is all rough timing and speculation, but I'm going to use Jen Delari's insight about the spice cracks to ground it a little more. Mage 2, The Hero Defined, started coming out in 1997. That also happens to be the year that the Spice Girls album Spice was released and became the biggest selling album of 1997 in the U.S. So the Spice Grax would definitely be active around that time. As the Thorns leave on their appointed activities, the Umbra Sprite turns to a large painting of a huge black maelstrom with teeth and an eye and lightning squiggles. The Umbra Sprite tells the painting, Patience, darling, soon. So I think we have another big bad waiting to be summoned by the Umbra Sprite. Maybe the Umbra Sprite is just waiting for the right time. Maybe there needs, I don't know, to be enough energy built up as with Emile's Golem. Uh, the Man Mountain. Either way, whenever the Umbra Sprite summons nasties to the Earth, the summoning typically took a lot of energy out of the Umbra Sprite, and it's painful. In an early issue of Hero Discovered, the Umbra Sprite summons something called the Marhalt Ogre and tells the Grackle Flints, You remember how unpleasant it was traveling to this wretched little plane? Well, summoning something to it is much, much worse. So, if this is a really as big and bad of something as it looks like it's going to be, then um, it'll be interesting to see if that if that happens when when things come to fruition. We return to our heroes and find Kevin and Magda discussing what to do. Kevin decides and puts forward that the best way to protect the family is for him to go on the road. He proposes that he resumes the nasty hunt and actively draw the bad guys looking for him away from the family. The next morning, Kevin says goodbye, first to Miranda, who's building some kind of toy cage. She tells him it's a pattern. Actually, she says it's a pattern, which may be a mispronunciation of pattern or something else. 
It's hard to tell. Kids. Kevin encourages her, tells her he loves her with a kiss, and she says, like any kid making stuff or art for mommy and daddy, making for you, dadder. So, as I said in the last episode, Miranda is sensitive, and I think this is more than just her being sensitive emotionally. I think she's sensitive in a magical way. I think this thing she is building, whatever it is, specifically for her daddy, will come back later. I also think we're seeing a manifestation of her powers here with this construction and attention to detail. In Hero Defined, Wally Ott would go on about women's magic involving chants, charts, castings, recipes. The men just seem to channel raw power, where women's magic or witches' magic seems to always have physical manifestations or rituals involved with it. Now, in some ways, given that one of the witches in question was Isis, the alter ego of Diana Schutz, Matt's past and current editor and sister-in-law, this always struck me as the raw creative comic creator's magic, in contrast to the editor's and publisher's charts and tools used to maintain deadlines and publication schedules, everything that provides order and shape to the magic of publishing comics. You need the two together. I doubt that there is an exact line to be drawn between the comic metaphor and the day-to-day of comic publishing. Matt seems to like to leave some of these allusions loose or lightly referenced. Still, I imagine that this pattern, or pattern, will come back later. This is followed by a touching family farewell. Really nice elements here. The lovey hearts, another protective kiss charm from Magda. You can see her putting on her special lipstick and a panel with stars trailing around the lipstick tube. Some great touches here. And then Kevin gets on a bus to who knows where. And this is where we get what feels to me like the second movie genre tone. The lone hero action movie montage. Only here we get six panels of what happens around and after the action, not the actual action. Someone talking about a creature attacking her and a guy coming out of nowhere. Some kids talking about something called a bugaboo and some dude busting its ass with an apple. A megawatt apple. A wrecked freight car with signs of an electrical fire marking it. Even what appears to be some other avatars. Other heroes discussing the rumors of the return of the pen dragon, the pen, after ten years. All of this bookended by two frames of Kevin in different buses, and I love the small artwork and coloring touches here. The first bus ride frame with a grim, determined, almost scowling Kevin has this yellow morning-like sky. The aftermath panels are all muted gray, nighttime or dusk tones, and the last bus ride panel shows a Kevin who's smiling a bit. Seems like he's enjoying getting back into the game. There's a sunset red sky in the background, and this is the same shades of red sky you get in West Coast Mountain States at sunset. Brennan Wagner captures it perfectly and beautifully in the closing panels with Kevin. We'll get to that in a moment. Some other things that are sweet about this unseen hero montage. The Megawatt Apple comment has been set up by at least a few scenes so far, most notably the Megawatt Pebble and the Megawatt Splinter from the battles in issue 0 and 1. So even without seeing the action, we know what it looks like and we know what has happened. Also, I wonder who these avatars are in this sequence. One of them has what look like horn-rimmed glasses and a blazing sun on his chest. Any ideas or or speculations are, are welcome. And what happened to that other flamingo? 
None of this goes unnoticed by the Umbra Sprite, who is in pain every time Kevin uses his power, or as the Umbra Sprite refers to it, the weapon. But Kevin's use of his power has revealed his location, and the villain decides to send an adversary to take down Kevin while the thorns continue their work. And then we see Kevin getting off a bus around sundown, the bus driver letting him know another bus won't be along until the next day, and Kevin just plants himself down on a bus stop to wait for whatever enemy is likely to come for him. Amid these great purple mountains majesty, these great red skies courtesy of Brennan Wagner, and the lettering at the bottom is great, reading, To be continued and wish you were here, both like they came right off a scenic postcard. After all, according to the signs, this is a rest area at a scenic vista. I'd like to refer again to some review commentary by Michael Pencus of Blackgate in his review of this issue. Specifically, he mentions his problems with the plan for Kevin to leave the family alone and draw the danger away. Now, I'll link to the review on the blog post for this podcast at magetheherodescribed.com so you can read his whole spiel. But he thinks this is an action that is a sign of Kevin trying to do everything himself again, and that inevitably the family is going to end up kidnapped by the bad guys. Only he says it much more amusingly than that, and uh, and with a few more points. I'm not going to quote him outright here, just check out the review of Blackgate. And I'm not sure, he might be 100% right. I know that when Kevin leaves the family alone, I could already feel the tension hanging in the air, like waiting for the other shoe to drop and have something nasty happen when the family gets discovered by the bad guys and Kevin isn't around. I just hope he's wrong. Michael does float the following amusing idea. He says, It would have been better if the bad guys showed up in his house next issue, only to find a dozen heroes in his backyard having a barbecue and waiting to smash evil. And as pleasing as that might be, it reminds me of Kirby Hero and his 12 Herculean labors in Hero Defined. When Kevin takes away his ability to fulfill his destiny, Kirby is royally, demigodily pissed. Logistics be damned, Kirby was nearly dead, and there is little to no chance that Kevin could have revived him while the man-mountain golem thing was still active. So having a bunch of heroes take down the Umbra sprite, I'm not sure. Ultimately, it might be just so big and bad that it's beyond Kevin's scope to take it down on his own. But this is Kevin's villain, and the Umbra sprite makes comments in the hero discovered that indicates past experience with the hero, perhaps in a past incarnation or two. I think this is ultimately going to be between Kevin and the Umbra sprite, or maybe even Kevin and his family against the Umbra sprite and minions. Family versus family. Again, while I see where Mike Pencus is coming from, I find myself more aligned with the sentiment voiced by Chris Beveridge in his review at Fandom Post, whose take on the overall events in this issue is, some of what he does, some of what this does is fairly predictable, but that's because it makes the most sense. Links to both of these reviews will be provided in the blog post for this episode. So that's it for this issue. I'd like to take a moment, though, to focus on the letter column. Letter columns are one of the best parts of comics, and they get totally lost in collections, reprints, digital republication, and it's a damn shame, because really, the letter column is, until recently, the only place where you get to see dialogue between fans and creative teams. 
you know, writers, editors, whoever. There was one comic collection that I can think of which did include letter columns, and those were the Kamiko Mage Book collections of The Hero Discovered. I mentioned those earlier in this episode. The letter columns for The Hero Discovered and Hero Defined were full of guesses, insights, comments about artwork clubs, you name it. And all of that gets lost after the first run. So let's take a moment and check into the mailbag for issue number three. In the mail, overall, everyone is still pretty much high on the glow of Mage 3 even coming out. Getting to see, you know, much-beloved characters like Kevin and Magda, getting to meet the kids and the villains. The creative team gets a lot of equal mention. The coloring work of Brennan Wagner, the return of Diana Schutz. In response to a letter from Brad Barnes, Matt explains her consulting role um, on Hero Denied, her role as a consulting editor. Now, the excitement of James Todd Haney's letter is no doubt shared by many, and then we get to three letters that are a bit different than your usual comic letter column fare. First, we start with a long letter from Jen Delari. Now, I mentioned Jen earlier as the only reader to comment to Matt about the Spice Girls being the stylistic inspiration for the Gracklethorns. Her letter maps out her journey as a comic fan and aspiring comic creator. She really maps out, for her, how parts of her life's journey mirror Kevin Matchstick's own journey. It's an inspirational story, and one in some ways that I keep seeing crop up by various fans and reviewers. People who have just grown up with Mage in their life and find themselves comfortable with seeing that Kevin Matchstick and Mage have also grown up with them. We also get a story from Matt Imry, his story of discovering Mage in a South African library, and then by chance finding the hero defined in the UK. And lastly, we get Kyle Rowe from Scotland, sharing his comic collecting story and reading both Hero Discovered and Defined long after their first eight runs, and his thrill at seeing it back on the shelves. In an early episode of the podcast, I had mentioned that this is a series that seems unusually near and dear to fans' hearts, that every mage fan has a story, and in the letter column for this issue, we got some great looks at some fan stories. Now, as I've said before, if you have a story that you'd like to share, or some thoughts about the characters, or the plot, or whatever, feel free to drop by MageTheHeroDiscovered.com, visit the contact feedback page, there you'll find a list of the many ways you can keep in touch. Um, I don't have a postcard to send your way, but I'll see if I can include your feedback or thoughts in a future podcast with a call-out. That's it for this week's episode of Mage the Hero Described podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review issue number four. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts, visit magetheherodescribed.com and you'll find podcasts, reviews of mage comics, interviews with Matt, and more. You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast, gallery, or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please share it through the usual social networks, and especially rate and review it on iTunes. I understand it really helps other listeners discover the show. So thanks, and until next time, stay excellent.